0: Let me just say that um, I appreciated uh, singing the song today, but I just want you to be aware that there's a. Um, if the truth be known, uh, I didn't sing all the words today because I, I didn't. I uh, found one one stanza hard to sing, and uh, you need to know that so you'll know that I'm trying to be honest here. Uh, it says, um, "At the cross, when I first saw the light." Uh, the burden of heart, my heart rolled away, and there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. That is not true. So if you're here today and you think Christianity is being happy all the day, uh, that's not an accurate understanding of the Christian faith. So I was singing, I am blessed all the day. I think that's accurate. I was singing joyful, and I thought, I don't think I'm even joyful all the day, I have to admit. So just so your own sake, um, um, uh, in truth and in, truth in worship. Okay, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that we are blessed if we are in Christ. And we thank you that there is much, much encouragement. There is much uh, meaning and purpose in life because of Christ. And there is a great sense of joy in knowing that we have a reason to be here and a purpose for life. And uh, thank you, Father, for the joy it is to look into your Word. We thank you for the insight that we receive in this portion of your Word. We pray that we might gain insight as to how it applies to us. And uh, we pray that you'd use your Word to help us see more clearly uh, the privilege that is ours to be your ambassadors, and that we might be used by you to make your truth known, so that others may come to know you as well. May that happen even today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Obviously, we've been looking through the book of Acts, and we now are returning to the 17th chapter. And as we look at this chapter, we are very blessed, really, to have another powerful example of uh, seeing how the gospel is communicated, to realize the power of the gospel as it's communicated, and to realize that the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit are essential in this uh, privilege of making Christ known. Now we look in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, we have Paul all by himself. Uh, He is there preceded uh, others who are going to come after him. Uh, He has been there for a while. It's a a city that is a very impressive city, known for its education, known for philosophy, philosophy. Uh, known for art and known for its literature. Uh, the city is jam-packed as he's walked around. And he can't help but notice that there are tons of idols and statues and temples everywhere. And so he has taken some time to analyze what he has observed. He has thought about it deeply from a spiritual point of view. He's thinking about the practices and the patterns of life among this a uh, vast number of people, particularly those who are non-Jews among the population of Athens. And he realizes that a large number of these Athenians are just that. They are intellectual, polytheistic uh, people who hold to a non-biblical worldview. In other words, it's much different from a Jewish point of view or Jewish perspective a Jewish mindset that he has already now addressed them in the temple he went there and be sure to share the truth with them but now notice that his his observations in verse 16 I spoke on this several weeks ago if you weren't here for that sermon be sure to hear that one uh, on our website but he talks about this the strong reaction that his observations had upon him Uh, verse 16 says his spirit was being provoked within him It's a powerful, very strong reaction. And I want want to also just say that before we just move right into this sermon, in my own thoughts, I thought, you know, we need to slow down and think to ourselves, what's really going on inside of him? His, His pattern of taking the gospel and making it known in many other cities has not ended well. He has suffered a lot. He has been stoned here not too long ago and left for dead. What is it that makes him have such a strong burden and conviction and propensity to keep sharing the news about Jesus. And I'm convinced several things come to mind. Hold your finger there if you would, and just look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just for a second. 2 Corinthians 5, because I believe this helps us understand why he is giving the message that he gives. It helps us understand how uh, there's more to th- than just um, following some sort of, Scheme or, or, or outline that he's going to have to follow, but clearly there's in Paul, there's something that's deeply moved inside of him that leads him to say what he's going to say. And I would just like to point out that some of his thoughts about the privilege of making the gospel known. If you look at verse, for example, in chapter 5, we look at verse 11, Paul says, We know that the fear of the Lord is something that has gripped his heart, a fear or a sense of holy awe and reverence for the Lord. And so that's part of who he is and part of what's motivating him. And therefore, knowing that this sense of holy awe of God, he persuades other people. That comment there also, I think, is important to realize in verse, for example, 9, he talks about the fact that his ambition for why he's even alive after he's talked about death and the fact that he knows he's not going to be around too much longer, his body's wearing out. He says, I have one ambition. I want to please Christ. I want to live a life that really pleases him. He's motivated to please the Lord. Why is that? Look at verse 19. Sorry, verse um, 18. He mentioned there the, um, sorry, verse 14 is what I meant to say. For the love of Christ controls us constrains us the fact that Christ has shown such love to him a person who had done so many things to offend God so many things to uh, uh, destroy the church he is amazed by the love of Christ and the love that was shown by Christ for him and that is what's motivating him to move in this direction so I if you hear me say anything this morning maybe one of the reasons that many of us are not involved as much as in evangelistic conversations as we could or should Is it because we really are not aware of the love of God has for us and a sense of which that love of Christ motivates us to have a love for other people? Clearly, Paul was moved by that. And if you look also in the text here, verse 18, he talks about the fact that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has also given us the the word of God, verse 19, a message that is trustworthy and reliable. And then if you'll notice lastly here, verse 20, He mentions that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. And then he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now he's speaking to other believers there, but he's saying this whole ministry of being an ambassador is to be a person who's what? We're representing the king. He sends us as his ambassadors and we have a message that he is sending through us. And here's the message we want you to know. So, that is indeed, I think, the background as to what Paul has in his mind here. He's looking at all of these lost people who are very religious, but they don't know the real, true, living God. And his heart is broken by that. And he's concerned about that. He says, I know God, and God has loved me and done these amazing things in Christ. I'm going to speak on his behalf and make known these truths to these people. So, this morning, I want us to look now back at Acts 17. And just consider briefly now three principles or be, just basics for the idea of proclaiming the gospel. The first one is this. I use the word discernment. To be discerning, to be aware of what was going on. As far as you're able, attempt to understand the worldview of the person that you're witnessing to. See, the setting for this evangelistic encounter was similar to in some ways, to Paul walking onto the campus of Harvard University there in Boston. Or to think of uh, Paul walking onto the campus of Oxford University. Clearly, he is engaged in conversation here with some of the intellectual elite of the day. So much so, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 17 in Acts, uh, you can tell there's a little bit of intellectual snobbery uh, that these folks comment about Paul. Um, and they mentioned some comment that he's a, a, a seed picker, is literally what it says. He's a babbler. He's a person that seems to pick up a little idea here, a little bit of idea here, a little idea here, and therefore he's not very sophisticated. This is just thrown together a couple of comments. He's, not, he's sort of an amateur philosopher. He's borrowing ideas from other people. He doesn't really have anything original to say. But the fact is that Paul is very much aware of certain patterns of thought that are being widely distributed there and widely held in Athens. He's aware of the currents that are flowing in his day, of different teaching and different assumptions, different perspectives. Now, there's some who were among him who were of the Epicurean philosophy. Verse 18. These are primarily people who have a a background as being materialists, And they are assuming that if there is such a thing as gods, and they're very skeptical about that, they would assume that that god, whatever exists, is so far away, so far aloof and removed from any kind of interaction that there's no no interest on the part of those gods in what goes on in your life and my life. So they think there's no interaction with humans and the gods. And so therefore, these people are living for the here and the now. They're assuming that there's no afterlife. This is the the followers of Epicurus. And they are also assuming that the world is governed by chance. There's no sense of order. No sense of life is moving from a a logical place of, of any kind of plan in life at all. It's just randomness. And the main pursuit of life, therefore, is to enjoy yourself. Pleasure. Interesting philosophy of life. It sounds like many people are, are similarly have that kind of mentality in today's world. There's another popular philosoph- philosophical school of thought there at the time. According to verse 18, it was the Stoics, founded by a fellow named Zeno. And this group of people assumed that the world itself was divine. It's sort of a pantheistic view of reality. And they tended to adopt this fatalistic approach to life. Basically, they're going to sort of submit to whatever happens. And whatever happens, you must endure the pain and you just make the best of life as it's dealt to you. And So here's Paul, and he's aware of these kinds of writings and the kind of thoughts that were rather popular at the time. If you look at verse 28, you'll notice that Paul himself had read some of these writings of these authors and people who hold these particular views. Now, how does that affect you and me? Well, there are obviously many worldviews in our culture today. One of the most common one is, of course, I would call evolutionary naturalism. This assumes that the world in which we live in a world in which there is no personal God. Uh, that, that what, is, what is exists, it is due to chance, it's due to time, it's due to energy. And therefore, there's no purpose, there's no meaning in life. And therefore, there are many who would hold that there are no, there's no such thing as absolutes. No such things as absolute right and absolute wrong. And by the way, just parenthetically, uh, isn't that an absolute statement? For people to make that kind of statement, there is no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong. People don't realize it, but they oftentimes are not living consistent with their perspectives and their worldviews. But anyway, it's helpful to ask questions In, in engaging with people to try to discern from what point of view are they coming? Is this an atheist I'm talking to? Well, that might affect the way in which we engage them. But Paul does not start with the assumption that they're on the same page in terms of their presuppositions. For Paul, he launches into his own presupposition, a biblical presuppositional point of view. His biblical worldview is going to come out in his message to them. And so he's declaring to them the fact that, indeed, as an image bearer of God, everyone has a testimony Everyone has evidence around them of God. Everyone has the opportunity to know there is a true and living God who is powerful, who has made all things. Romans 1 says that is obvious to every person. God has made it obvious. The problem is that people have suppressed that evidence and that truth. They have held it under and try their best to ignore it and the implications of having to deal with the true and living God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, listen, that ignorance is not an excuse any longer. I'm here to inform you, to make you aware that that, you're in a bad place. You've pushed the evidence aside, and now I'm going to put the evidence in front of you again more clearly in my own attempts. I came across an interesting updated version, if you will, of what Paul may have introduced, you know, his first opening statement here and a more contemporary version of it by one of the university staff members. And so he spins the modern version like this. He would said something like this. Men and women of the university, I see that in every way you folks are religious. As I walked around the university, I observed carefully your objects of worship. I saw your altar called the stadium, where many of you worship the sports deity. I saw the science building where many place their faith in the salvation of mankind. That the real answers to man's problems are found in the laboratories. I walked through your resident halls. I observed your sex goddess posters. Well, obviously that's a little dated. Uh, I've, I've seen online. I've looked at your postings and seen your various images. I've seen your beer can pyramids. And yet as I walked with some of you and saw the emptiness of your eyes and sensed your aching in your hearts, I perceived that in your heart is yet another altar, an altar to an unknown God who you suspect may be there. You have a sense that there is something more than these humanistic and self-indulgent gods. And what you long for is something unknown. And I want to declare That to you, now. I would just say this: There's no way you're ever going to know fully what someone else uh, believes or what their full perspective or worldview may be. But it is helpful at least gauge a little bit of what they're where they're coming from, what they assume, and ask good questions to oftentimes discover that. But the second point I want to make this morning is to notice what Paul does. He is involved in what I would call fidelity. The first was discernment, the second is fidelity. With the opportunities God gives us, we're to make known the fundamental truths about God. God as he is revealed in the scriptures, and urge people to respond in repentance. If you read through these verses, verses 24 to 31. And I've read through them a number of times. I just kept reading them over and over. I'm so impressed with how Paul made known, what he made known about the true and living God. He didn't hesitate to set before his audience several essential characteristics about God. He starts off by pointing out that God is the God who has created everything. That God is a glorious God who has created everything. Everything. Everyone. And therefore, this God has set apart. He's not like idols who, they, who themselves are created. The idols that are scattered across the city. I am helping you understand God is unique and much different than that. And That's why we call, to call God holy. He is set apart. He's different from all others. He is not like man-made gods who reside in man-made temples and i love this little verse i came across in first kings chapter 8 verse 27 in which solomon says heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you god i mean god cannot be contained by any particular man-made building or uh temple like uh any kind of object like that that we've made he is a god who is supreme above all because he made everything and therefore you and i have been created the world is not ultimate but indeed the world is not eternal only god is and the universe sprang from the mind the word and the hand of someone else god himself therefore everything that exists has a purpose, including you, including me. We're not the result of random mutations. We're not the result of what one person said, chromosomal accidents. That's not why we're here. But there are so many people in our world who assume that or live as if that is the reality. But the gospel starts off by defining who God is. He is the holy, righteous creator. Seems like a good place to start in explaining the gospel because that is indeed so important that since, because since God made everything, we are not autonomous. We are not the kings of this world. And since God is the king and the creator of all, he fashioned all things for himself for his own purposes, therefore everyone is accountable to him. Now I want to say that word clearly so you understand it accountable. I listened to a sermon one time, a guy preached it, and all through the sermon I kept hearing him say, you are all cannibals. You're all cannibals. I'm like, what's he talking about? And I couldn't hear him say, or it wasn't very clear, but anyway, accountable is the word I'm saying. We are accountable. And Paul aims the spotlight on the uniqueness of God as the one who is the only creator And look at verse 25. He talks about God as self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't rely on us for anything. And He's the one that actually sustains us in all living things. The fact that we exist, the fact that we are able to take another breath is due to His will. It's due to His choosing. And the only Creator God is not a localized God. He's not the God of this little group of people over here or this particular ethnic culture over here. But notice Paul is trying to show that as the creator, therefore he is the universal God over all people in all times in history and that he's the one who determines what is happening in human history. It's fascinating what he does in terms of explaining the fact that God is overseeing the massive geopolitical changes that happen in a society over long periods of time, the raising up of one kingdom and empire and the dissolution of that empire and kingdom to another one that replaces it. On that level and also on the level of what happens on a subatomic or molecular level, God is the one who's supreme and ruling over everything in His creation. He's involved in His creation. You can tell he's speaking uh, in such a way that he's contradicting some of the commonly held views among the Epicureans and these Stoics. God is not aloof, He is not indifferent to what we do in this world. We are dependent creatures upon Him, and He is actively involved in every detail of life. And we as human beings are not in control of world history. We don't have the power to hold things together, we don't have the power to, to create God. We are His offspring. He's trying to again point to paint the pictures to who God is. It's so essential that people who don't hold to a biblical worldview be introduced to the true and living God. the God that's revealed in the scriptures, the God that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we who are idolaters, people who have views and false definitions of God because oftentimes, We are defining God as to what makes sense in our minds about what we think God ought to be or do, but there are so many uh, idolatrous concepts about God all around us in society today. Some people insist that God doesn't exist, so we just take him out of the whole equation. When you do that, you're now trying to make sense of what goes on in the world. You're left with a lot, a lot of problems to, to resolve in light of that, other people assume that God is impotent; He's weak. He would like to be able to do some things, but He just can't because His hands are tied, and so therefore He's a, He's sort of a, a a very anemic kind of God. Other people are assuming that they refuse the, any kind of notion that God would judge anyone; that God would judge anyone ever or for anything. And so they assume that if there is a God, that This God, no doubt, is a realistic about the fact that what? Nobody's perfect. So they said, well, you know, God must accept the fact that since nobody's perfect, it's got to be no problem for him to forgive people, right? And so uh, they assume that God is never judging, only forgiving, and only loving. That's how God must be. He must be tolerant of all forms of sexual expression, all forms of moral codes, and so they've... Uh, They've thought about their God in their own way of thinking and they've said the modern God of course has no need for anything called hell now it's that kind of mindset that needs to be what? that's an ignorant mindset that's not true that's not the reality of what is, is really going on in the universe there is a God and we have to understand him as he truly is and so part of the joy we have in verse 30 is to notice that Paul says listen This true and living God, He's not made in our image. We're made in His image. He's the creator of everything. Therefore, we are, again I say, we are accountable to Him. Notice verse 30. God is insisting. I know some of the the, the, uh, the verbs, like what is God doing? God has done this. God will do this someday. And God is doing this, it says in this verse. Verse 30. God is insisting that everyone repent of their rebellion and their idolatrous worship. They say, well, how is God insisting? How is God declaring? How is God making that known? Well, he's using the scriptures for sure, but he's using his people to make that declaration on his behalf, which goes right with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Through his witnesses, through you and me. At some point, therefore, it's important that we call people to deal with God on his terms. The true God and dealing with him on his terms. Look what he says there. Paul says, there is coming a day of accountability. It's interesting to see that Paul here in his evangelistic approach, he's taking it seems to me quite a bit of time to get to the point of telling them bad news. He's giving them the one side of evangelism that we need to work on, and that is help people understand you've got some serious problems because I don't think you're ready for that day when you're going to have to give account to God for all that you've done in offending Him and His holy laws. It takes a while to lay that foundation for some people. And obviously, as I'll say here now, and I'll probably say it later, this was a process that Paul took it wasn't something in which he fully explained all of the complete gospel, maybe in one presentation. Oftentimes evangelism takes several conversations to get through and establish different truths. It's clear that Paul, for some people, had to wait till later to get to the full message of the good news, for example, in verse 32 and following. So here's the thing. When we make our appeal to unbelievers, we shouldn't just merely say that Jesus is the answer to your unmet needs. For example, some people might say, well, I just have these feelings of emptiness. I don't feel like my life has any meaning or purpose. Okay, well, we understand that that's true, and that would be obviously uh, not surprising for an unbeliever to say such, but we would do well to proclaim to unbelievers who God is. And to explain to them that they are accountable to him and therefore what God is calling them to do. You need to become reconciled to God. You need to get on good terms with God. You need to know God. You need to therefore uh, be forgiven by God. Because what you're facing is you're facing judgment. You're facing accountability. You're facing the fact that you will be condemned someday. So what Paul is trying to say here, Christianity is true. But Christianity is not a promise to solve all your problems. Hence, that's why I started off with what I said this morning. And Christianity does not make you happy all the day. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity says people who are out of sorts with God can be made right with God through Jesus Christ and therefore know Him and love Him and enjoy Him. So oftentimes, becoming a Christian may increase the number of difficulties in your life. Often it does. But it's true. And it's what you need desperately. To know God, to be forgiven by God, and to enter into a deep relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel witness, it seems to me, that would be helpful to make known to people. The idea that God created us to enjoy himself. Again, God created us to enjoy Himself and to extend His glory. And the people we share with need to know that they have rebelled, they have gone about trying to find joy in other things other than God, and that they have tried to extend their own glory, and they've robbed God of His glory, and that therefore we're guilty before Him. And Jesus, God incarnate, perfectly fulfilled our mandate to enjoy God And to extend His glory, and therefore His perfect record is graciously given to all who are united to Him in repentance and faith. That's not an easy message to deliver to people who are very academic, very intellectual, people who are very sophisticated, but that is the truth. And it is the life-changing gospel truth. It is powerful. It changes people's hearts and our status before God. That leads me to my third point here, and that is a sense of reliance. Reliance, reliance upon God. With these opportunities that God gives us to proclaim the gospel, we need to trust Him with the results. Trust Him with the results. Here's Paul proclaiming a gospel. And as he does so, he clearly is not even able to finish the outline. Did you notice that? He he talks about God. He didn't have a chance to fully expand on who Christ is, but he does talk about us a little bit, but finally did get to the point of response there. And so there were times in which he had to follow up a further explanation of what the full understanding of the gospel is. But notice that we have the messenger giving a a gospel message, but notice how the response is different. Look at verses 32 to 34. He says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to, to sneer. Others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris and others with them. I couldn't help but think of Jesus' uh, parable in Matthew 13 in which he talks about seed, the same seed, and you have the farmer sowing the seed. Some of the seed falls on what? The pathway that's beaten down with that seed can't even penetrate the ground. It's picked off by the birds and away it goes. Others, it falls on soil that's very shallow. You can't see it, but there's rock underneath there. And so it's going to grow and the roots aren't going to go very deep. It's going to die. And then there's seed that falls on the ground over here where there's thorns that are going to grow up. You can't tell those thorns are there yet, but here they come later and they're going to choke it out. And then it falls on some places where it's good soil. And the same is true when we share the gospel with people. We're just going to take the same message, the same gospel truth, and we're going to share it in, in, in different conversations we have with people. But there's no need, therefore, to be what? Discouraged on how the response comes to that gospel message. Because even with the Apostle Paul, some people what? Some people sneered, said, ah, are you kidding me? Made a joke out of it? Some people were very much interested in knowing more. And it's a conversation that continually takes follow-up and more conversations and more conversations. And takes a while to fully make things clear and other people respond i find that to be encouraging i am not responsible for how people respond to the gospel that's not my not a load i have to carry but what i am responsible for is i need to make sure i say it accurately convey it accurately it needs to be biblical it needs to be clear and i say it compassionately When it comes to evangelism, we don't need to manipulate people. We don't need to embellish the gospel. Our focus needs to be on what God calls us to do. And I've listed in your bulletin there two different examples of Paul asking for prayer. So that one of the things we need to do is be in a prayerful state of mind. Lord, I need your help here. I'm I'm trying to make these things clearly known. Also, we need to understand that God needs to open a door for us. There are moments to share and there are moments not to share the gospel. And also the fact that we are looking for the Holy Spirit to use the Word of God and to change someone's heart so that they do respond in faith. That's what God does. I can't do that, but God can and does. And let us be confident as we look for gospel opportunities to realize that He takes weak vessels and uses them. He speaks through us if what we're speaking is biblical truth with hearts that have been touched by the love of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are here today, there might be some of us who may have never truly thought through the implications of the gospel to realize that we are created. We are not our own. And we are accountable to you. And there is a day of judgment coming. Where Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome death, He will face us and He will ask us and He will hold us accountable. And He will be a just judge and there is no hiding, no escaping, no excuses that will be available at that time. And So Lord, I pray if there is someone here this morning who has never repented of their sin, they've never had a change of heart, they might sense with great wonder a heaviness, a a, a mourning over sin, a desire to repent and to turn and to follow Christ and to fully depend upon Him and to rely upon what He's done for us to make us right with You. So, Lord, we pray that You would impress once again upon us the wondrous truths of the Gospel. We pray that You would help us to see that Christianity is the only, the only perspective that answers all of the big questions of life, it is the only one that is consistent, it is the only one that makes sense of reality, because you are the reality and you are the one who has declared these things to us. We pray that you would give us greater boldness. We pray that you would give us greater clarity in how we speak. And we pray that you give us open opportunities to share Christ, even this week, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.